It's one thirteen, meaning January 13th, 2015, and I guess it's about 8, no, it's 7, yeah, 8.45 in the morning. I've been studying for hours. I've been, I got up, woke up at 4.30, and uh, I was out here sitting down with my Bible by about 4.50, having made coffee, so as of right now, as of a typical morning, I've been studying the Bible for three hours and 45 minutes. And um, I, I just I went to lay down to just pray, and I just started to become overwhelmed by God's sovereignty. I've been reading in First Samuel for the last couple of days, really just trying to immerse myself and the story of King Saul and King David and this whole journey. And as I laid down here to pray, I just began to thank God for all of the things that He's done in my heart, for making me strong, for guiding and directing my steps, for teaching me about His ways. And then as I began to thank God for His sovereignty, I immediately began to thank God that I realize now that at any time, any second when he's ready, he can change Laura's heart. He can. I've seen him as I have as I have been studying God's unbelievable account of how he interacted with David using Saul, and I see all the times that. And the Lord brought you to me. And the Lord gave him an evil spirit. And the Lord delivered me from your hands. And the Lord warned David. You just begin to see God's sovereign hand of providence everywhere. And it is deeply mysterious when you try to figure out your normal life in today's world and society. And how does that fit with God's sovereignty and it's becoming more and more clear to me. It's I'm having better and better understanding of what that looks like and what that means. And I just, because I fear the Lord and I walk in His ways, the Lord says to me in Psalm twenty-five, twelve, as He says to everyone, who is the man who fears the Lord, He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. So I'm watching David begin to learn this. And you see, you realize that God is using this evil spirit filled man Saul the the evil spirit came from God and the whole purpose of it is not just to punish Saul because that could have been done easier and in a short way he could have just quickly put him to death annihilated him from the face of the earth what have you but that's not what it's about God intentionally uses this and inflames Saul with the tormenting of this spirit for the very purposes of being the hand of affliction in David's life. And you see this happen over and over again. And so what you end up seeing is you see God having one hand on Saul, afflicting him, causing him to be this horribly evil enemy in constant pursuit and antagonizing David. Then with the other hand, you see God guiding, directing, warning, 
saving, delivering David from... It's like God using both hands. God is delivering his right hand from his left hand, which is bringing the affliction. It is absolutely astonishing when you see this. I mean, and I've been seeing this, hints of this for years and have been flirting with it, but now that I'm farther along in my own journey and I now have miles and miles and years of studying God and years of being pursued by an enemy and years of being warned about this enemy, I'm seeing my story in the story, in the story of King Saul and King David. It's unbelievable. Saul is to me. She's tormented with an evil spirit all these years. She continually comes to me. She does this Jekyll and Hyde thing where she feels remorse just like David and Saul in, in you know, 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. You know, I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, I, it's so hard for me to read this and not go, really? I mean, who would ever believe unless they themselves have walked through this, that I could say, you know what, this is exactly the way God's been working for thousands of years, and for those he calls to a big purpose, he calls to big trouble. And he's going he's gonna to allow the big trouble by one hand, and he's going to protect you from the other if you respond correctly. And there becomes our part in God's sovereignty. That is the role that we play in God's sovereignty is to continue to love God with all of our heart, mind, learning of God's ways, studying God's word, soul and strength, our whole essence, our whole being, our whole energy is to be expended in running to God, trusting God, loving God, obeying God, finding security in Him, depending upon Him, all of that. That's our role. And there'll be many times when it doesn't feel like we're getting any benefit from that, That God is not with us. He's not protecting us. All the while, those moments of darkness, the the miles of distance and waiting, the years, the weeks, the months, whatever it ends up being, God is developing faith. And, And somehow or another, the way the human nature works is the only way we can develop strong faith is through long, difficult periods of suffering and waiting. God does not just simply impart faith and then leave it untested. He gives us faith by His grace, but then it is strengthened and tested through times of seemingly God not being for us, not being with us, not knowing what we're going through. The thing that I wanted to get that I'm getting in my heart more and more is the farther down this road I've I've gotten and People say to me, you know, man, Mike, just trust God. You know, they, he just trusts God. And I just. <sighs> I just feel so alone in my trust in God. Sometimes I'm. Why do not other people. Why do not other people trust God? Why does it have to be that what I'm going through is so radical and so weird and so unnatural and so, you know, such a mental illness I've been accused of? I mean, my father thinks I'm weird. My ex-wife tells my kids I have a mental illness. My mom thought forever I had a mental illness because I trust God. And it just breaks my heart that other people 
why is it becoming so real for me and so natural and so like this is the way everybody who's a Christian should live and yet people call themselves Christians and look at me as if I'm some kind of a freak and unfortunately for them my life lines up with the stories in the Bible. The way I'm experiencing God is the same way that Abraham experienced God. (sighs) I hate it. I hate this part that I read the Bible and it's so relevant to me and it's so real and so like, yes, I could live this story that David's living now. I know God that way. I know what God's doing. I mean, I I read David's story and I realize David doesn't understand what God's doing yet, but I do. Now, granted, I have the benefit of reading God's story in David's life after the fact, but I'm sitting here realizing that I'm reading it and understanding it. Now, if I were to teach this to people, and there are people I've taught some of these things to, they they still think that it's principles from a God who was, not the God who is. And it just tears me up that people don't trust God. I mean, it's like the biggest... It's like the biggest heartbreak for me. It's like it just bothers me so much. People do not trust God. They don't understand how sovereign He is and how in control of their life He could be if they would allow Him. Now, God is ultimately in control of everything that's happening. But God chooses to direct the steps of those who fear Him, not those who are foolish, not those who don't trust Him. That's not what the Bible says. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will make your path straight. The Lord confides, makes known, brings into His counsel, makes intimate thoughts known to Him, and makes His covenant known to those who fear Him. This is Psalm 25, 14. And I (laughs) I just feel like sometimes... I just feel like sometimes God is finally opening my eyes to how how unnatural my life is. I mean, I have a tendency to believe that everybody believes God like this. And that everybody trusts Him and is, has a burning heart for Him. And not everybody does. There are so few people that have burning hearts for God. And like more and more, God has given me an awareness of the fact that my life is so unnatural. Because I'm believing in a supernatural God. And I'm trusting Him for supernatural provision. And I don't live in fear. I don't live in want. And God is just strengthening me more and more. And I feel like the more He does this, the more I'm being separated from people. 
I just keep hearing that sermon, that chapter written in the best of A.W. Tozer, the saint must walk alone. Opening words are that it is the price that all of God's saints must pay is loneliness. It seems that that's the price they all must pay, he says. And I'm not crying because I'm lonely. I'm crying because I get overwhelmed with grief that what I'm experiencing, so many people don't experience. They're stuck in religion or they're stuck in, well, I know I'm supposed to love God, so I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but then I'm going to live for the world, my agenda, my plans, my resources, run after man for secrets and tricks and figure out how to do life totally apart from God. And that seems so completely normal. And then when they hear me talk about how I'm living my life, well, that's a freak. You're, you know, you, God has called you clearly to something special. I'm not like you. I don't have faith like you. That is absolutely ridiculous. Now, maybe God doesn't call them to the same mission that he's called me to do. But it's absolutely clear that if you call yourself a Christian, you have to live in faith. What does Hebrews eleven six say? It is impossible to please God without faith. For anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Well, you will not diligently seek God. You will not diligently trust God. You will not diligently fear God. You will not diligently love him or obey him. If you do not have faith in Him. And faith is not something that we say in church we have. It is something that proves itself through action. And I'm caught in this... Man, I'm caught in this place where... I live with such joy. My mom asked me last night, Do you ever get lonely living in that house? I'm like, Oh my God, my God, no mother. I do not. God is with me. I don't get lonely. I mean, it's so unbelievable what I... It is so unbelievable what I have with the Lord. God is with me. But I stay trapped between my joy of what I have with the Father and how He's teaching me. No man is teaching me like God has been teaching me. And He's making me strong. My God, He's made me so strong compared to what I was. But I still, my heart is at grief. And my heart burns and is burdened over all of those that don't trust Him. And I know I'm not, quote, there yet. I know that five years from now I will look back on this and go, you thought you knew what trusting God was? Well, I pray that is the case. I don't want to stagnate in my trust of God. But man, I do have strong faith in God. And I do see that when people send me emails and say, man, you really obey God. You have such strong faith in God. You know, the pharmaceutical rep called my mom the other day, Becky Price, my mom's pharmaceutical rep for this new experimental drug called her to say, you know, the spirit of Abraham is on your son. And I thought, well, golly, she sees something that, you know, I just said, does she realize I just read the book Abraham and that he's my favorite character in all of the Bible? Because I do feel like God has called me to trust him in that way. But God is calling all of us to trust 
him in that way. That's why the Bible showcases Abraham in the New Testament to the New Testament church as an example of what faith in action looks like. I want so bad for people to believe God. I want so bad. I keep having this vision of, okay, sit down. I'm going to teach you how to trust God. People need to be taught. A man comes to me just a week ago and wants me to be his accountability partner in helping him move forward on selling a business. He, he, he doesn't have any faith. He's afraid. He's holding on to his own security. And I'm thinking to myself, here's a man who's been in church for years who doesn't know how to trust God. I can't just teach somebody what I've learned in five years in a 45-minute session over coffee. And, and I can't teach somebody. God has to teach somebody, but I can counsel somebody and help them begin to see the world's ways and see God's ways and help them with God's grace. Obviously, it takes God's grace to begin to step out of the world's way of doing things into God's way of doing things. I'll never forget, my mom didn't realize how profound what she's saying in her little heathenistic way at the time, saying, you know, it just seems like Michael doesn't live like society does. What society is saying or doing is not what Michael is saying or doing. My mom didn't realize, ding, 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 that's exactly the way it looks like for all who are true followers of God. You are, as Tozer says, otherworldly. You don't live in this world anymore. Jesus said to the disciples, you know, he says, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end shall be saved. And he reminds them, he says, A student is not greater than his master. He says, Remember the words I have spoken to you. He says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey your teaching." And he goes on to say to them, they will treat you this way because of my name. And he says to them, remember, you know, if the world hated you, they hated me first. And then he says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, for I have chosen you out of the world. I have chosen you out of this world. And then he says, they will treat you this way because of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. You know, being chosen out of the world is that. You don't lean on your own circumstances. And so anyhow, I want to kind of bring this back to my initial point is, I'm realizing right now in this moment more than ever how unbelievably God is in control. Like, I know that now I could send an email to Laura. Now, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not saying at all I would do this. But I realize how I could tell Laura, Laura, God has told me that you are going to be my wife. You are going to be my wife. And there's nothing that would stop that from happening because God has ordained it. God can change hearts. God can move upon. I mean, it's unbelievable how in control of things is, is God is for those who fear Him. So I know 
that when God is ready, he will move upon Laura's heart. God will direct my circumstances in such a way he'll set an appointment for me. He'll move upon me to go to a certain place. He'll do the same thing with Laura. And our schedules will think that it's just us. Well, it's just, you know, hey, somebody asked me to do this and so I'm going to do it. Not realizing that behind the scenes, it's God himself who's directing our paths on that day. Or God himself who is going to do whatever he's going to do to open Laura's heart to me. God is going to do something, either with my book or somebody I know or some of my videos or something, a dream, a friend. God will do something for Laura to change her mind and help her to know, no, Michael is not just some spiritual stalker here, Laura. He's not some weirdo. I literally have chosen him for you and you for him. And when God's timing is right, he's going to do this. And it isn't going to be because I came up with some slick way of getting her to like me or some slick way of proving to her that God is with me. I don't have to do this. God is going to do this. David never had to prove to anybody that God was with him. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just amazing to me to see all the times... That God is in control. And how God directs and protects through his divine providence. So I'm looking forward very much to seeing how God is going to open my door to Laura. Open the door to Laura and open her heart to me. And how is it that I've been able to trust this whole time that she hasn't been snatched up by another man? Because I know that God has directed. I guarantee you there are story after story of men who have approached Laura, who've tried to come on to her, who have tried. I mean, I bet you she's got buku opportunities that that has happened. And God providentially kept her heart sealed. Or men that tried to pursue her that their path was blocked. I bet you there's ones that she doesn't even know about. Where God is preserving her and setting her apart for Michael Criswell. And no man can do anything about it. I'm sure her parents have been praying for her future husband not knowing that he's already been chosen. Years in advance, God has already told me that I'm the one that he's chosen for her. That she's the one that he's chosen for me. And a person who doesn't have strong biblical faith and who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. I mean, you have to ask yourself, if you have a hard time with what I'm saying right now and you don't really believe that God still does these kind of things, what God do you believe in? Because you don't believe in the God of the Bible. I think of when Rebecca was chosen for Isaac by Abraham's servant and the way that God did this providentially sending an angel ahead and how the servant was given a specific providential way to ask and believe so that he would know that Rebecca was the one. And when that happens and he sees it, it's confirmation that God is with him. When he goes to the family And they invite him to eat and stay the night. He says, I cannot eat anything until I tell you what I have to say. And he begins to explain 
the whole story of what had happened providentially. God sending an angel with him to have him be success and how Rebecca comes out at just the right time and she does this. Now, Rebecca at that point might think she's the one that's offering to water his camels and give him drink just like out of the kindness of her heart. She doesn't realize that God has moved on her heart to do that in direct response to a request that has been made on another heart that's been moved by God for a sign. I mean, it's unbelievable. So God moves on the one man's heart to ask for a specific sign. Then he moves on the other lady's heart, Rebecca's heart, to actually fulfill the sign. She just thinks it's normal. She doesn't realize God has asked me to go water 10 camels today. No, she does it out of God's providence. This mysterious working of God's invisible power and sovereign grace. It's unbelievable to see this happen. So then what happens is he goes and tells the family this. If you told a family this today, they would think you are absolutely nuts. I mean, case in point, if I were to walk right now into to, to Laura's family, look up her family or look up Laura and say, Laura, here's what's happened, um, you know, and just basically relay the 212 story. Okay, so you and I met the night of the blue moon. It was once in a blue moon. I felt love at first sight in my heart. You walked out of my life that night. I was totally heartbroken over it. And I said, God, if you'll ever bring her back across my path, I'll have the courage to introduce myself. And there you were 21 days later, seven times three, 21 days later, there you are. And I went over and I, I did this and God opened this amazing door. You were so kind. Kelly was so kind to me that night. It was amazing. It was amazing. And then this series of circumstances take place. Your grandmother dies, your dog runs away, and you had to replace your secretary of nine years. And so you didn't have time to have coffee with me. You were, your world was turned upside down, not realizing God is in control of all of that. God closed the door. I'm not saying that a grandmother dying and all of that that happened specifically to prevent me, but God allowed all of those things and directed all of those things happen, yes, to prevent she and I from being able to come together because God still had a great deal of work. I mean a great deal of work that he needed to do in my heart. But if I were to re retell the whole story about 2.12 and all the promises God gave me for Laura, the 9.55, the 10.01s, the 212s, over and over, God promising me, I have given you the desire of your heart. I have not withheld the request of your lips. And how, when I gave up on her, God gave me a dream three days later and showed me that I would run back into her. And then I run into her exactly like in the dream at that Starbucks that time. And just like God showed me in the dream, she was aloof and standoffish. She was in the dream, and God showed me in the dream that something bad had happened to her. She was wearing ice skates in the dream on the ground, and her ankles were shaky. She had been through something difficult, but I didn't know what it was, but God was telling me, you need to be cautious, you need to be patient, not cautious, but careful, patient. She's been through something hard. It's going to take a long time for her to be open to this with you, Michael, and to trust. Here, God was telling me in advance. And then on December 6th, an hour into my Bible study, 2013, stop. Now, pray for Laura. 
as if something heavy has happened to her. I stop and I pray. That night I'm curious, you know, why would God have had me pray? And one thing leads to another. I begin to research about what happened to her husband. Where is he? Why is he not in their life? What happened in the divorce? I discover he's widowed. I discover he's died in a terrible plane crash. And what day did he die? December 7th. The 24 hours after God had asked me to pray for her, God knowing that it's a day before the anniversary when her heart must be burdened with this. Anyhow, and I could go on and on with all of these things, but supposing I were to go to her family and tell her family all of these things, God has made it clear to me that Laura is to be my wife. Just like God directed Abraham's servant to tell the whole story to that family, how did their family react? What do we have to say? This is clearly from God. They say, how can we say anything? This is clearly from God. Take the girl and go. They believed in the God of the Bible. They believed in a God who was in control. The reason why we don't believe in this God anymore is because he pulls his hand back in America and allows us to be our own gods. He allows us to be given to greed and to idolatry and to self-sufficiency. He allows us to be turned over to our reprobate, sick, self-sufficient, self-focused minds. And so that only furthers the idea in our mind that God used to work, but God's not. God used to be involved, but now he's not. He used to be here, but he's left the building. And then somebody like me comes along who prays, God, I give you everything. I surrender my whole life and God slays me and takes everything from me and then gets heavily involved in my life begins speaking to me in ways that very few people have ever heard of, begins directing my steps providentially, tells me of things that are going to happen before they happen, and then they happen, guides and directs me supernaturally into an unbelievable victory, and people think I'm nuts. People think I'm an idiot. People think I'm, I have a mental illness because of these things. I mean, how sad is that? I should write a book about the American Christian The American Christian, for all practical purposes, is dead to God. It's unbelievable. I think about what would happen if I were to tell, and I'm not saying that I even know anything about the quality of faith in Laura's life or in her parents' life. But I think to myself, just like as I used to tell my mom, Mom, Laura is going to be my wife. And my mom would say, you know what? Sounds to me like somebody living in a fantasy world. And finally, now my mom is praying for Laura and praying for them daily by name because she finally sees that God is God. But I mean, I've thought so many times and I know that God has had to bring me to a level of maturity because I've wanted so often to run ahead and I thought, well, God, what if I just called Laura and told her all these things? I mean, what if she and her family could see these things they would believe in God so many times I've wanted to get ahead? And I see now, man, if I would have ever done that, I would have shot myself in the foot. I have to wait for God's timing. God is readying the circumstances, both in my life and in hers. I cannot wait to tell her this story. I cannot wait for Laura to hear the stories of my own little childlike faith, my own little wanting to get ahead of God, my own little screaming out going, this is amazing, this is unbelievable what God did today. And having to have, there has to be maturity in that. God doing all these amazing things, I had to get over the amazing. 
I had to get over being astonished. I mean, it still is astonishing no matter what. But there's a, there's a maturity level now that I have where I see God, I've seen Him do this so often that I no longer will be freaked out by it. Like when Laura shows up, I'm not going to be freaked out. I'll have my heart racing. And if it didn't, there'd be something wrong with me. But there'll be that part of me that goes, yes, God, this is the day I've been waiting for. When I receive that email from her, whenever it comes in or whatever, however God decides to connect me to her, whatever it is he's going to do, I'll be like, yes, Lord, you said it would be like this. I won't be all freaked out, knees knocking, all that stuff, because it'll be more of a mature faith. My faith has been immature. So God has, it's, there's, a, there's, there's another part of having strong faith in God such that you get to a point where you're no longer shocked, but you can say, yes, the Lord has done this today. You believe it. You're astonished. You get on your face. You love God. You praise Him, but you're not like, ooh, God came through for me. Shock! That element of surprise needs to have been worked out of me. And it has because I've seen God so many times providentially, and it's taken time because God knows my disposition is one to run and just be so excited and get ahead of Him and just shout, and there needs to be maturity. That's why God has had me wait so long for Laura. Now I feel like if I don't eat, I'm going to pass out. I feel my blood sugar is now 9.20, so it's time for me to go eat. But God's sovereignty, what an unbelievable, unbelievable level of understanding God has given me in this, which now helps me to rest even more that He's in control of all things in my life, and now I'm learning how to participate in that through fear of the Lord and obeying patiently. And just like I'm doing, working on, I'll stop my Bible study now, eat and spend the rest of the morning memorizing the teachings just as the Lord has told me. It's interesting. For the first morning in weeks, I have not seen a 701. I have not seen an 801 or an 811 or a 722. God gave me permission this morning to rest into his word and to do this long Bible study in order for me to learn a greater measure of his sovereignty He's opening my eyes more and more. It's just incredible. The worst part about this is no matter how much you teach this to people, they can never get it until God opens their eyes. Knowing it and being aware of the principle but is one thing, but getting it in your heart with spiritual understanding can only come from God. I just had this vision of the kids coming to live with me and me sitting them all down and having an introductory talk to them about obedience and about how the rules of dad's house are going to be so totally different than the rules they've been under at mom. And I want them to learn the limits. I want them to understand where the boundaries are. I want them to be willing to ask me for things that maybe they have been told no a hundred times by their mom. And they're going to need to to find out what the new boundaries are by inquiring and asking. And They are also going to know that I am going to discipline them and that they are going to understand that when I tell them no about something, it's not because I'm trying to take away their fun or to make them bored or miserable. It is because I am loving them and protecting them. And so I saw myself taking them all into the kitchen and turning on the stove, blazing hot, letting the hot burner come on and looking at that. And then looking at them and pointing at that and saying, do not 
touch that. Now, why would dad ask you to not touch that? Is it because I want to take away your fun or because I'm trying to protect you from something? Protect us. And then I take them outside and I point up to the roof and I say, do not jump off of that roof. Am I trying to take away your fun? Because that might be fun to jump, wouldn't it? But am I telling you that, trying to take away your fun, or am I trying to love you and to keep you safe? And they'll get the lesson. And then the third one was the funny one. I saw myself taking them all into my bedroom and pointing into the toilet and saying, do not stick your head in the toilet. And they would all start cracking up laughing, looking at me, and I can see their faces and all that. But I just had this wonderful vision. I'm sitting here studying the words of God. Mark 10, 28 through 30, and thought about children and was just thinking about how all these things Jesus teaches us, don't do this, don't do that, and the Ten Commandments, don't covet, don't steal, don't murder, you know, don't lie, uh, don't defraud, all those kind of things. And it's not that God is trying to take away all of our fun. He is a loving Father trying to protect us from harm and evil. It's January 13th, and uh, about 2.28 in the afternoon, I'm out on the soft, soggy, wet trail. And I've just finished up listening to The Call to Commitment, Part 1, by Charles Stanley. He's done a really wonderful job on a series about commitment. And I, I am still struggling a lot recently in listening to his messages with the fact that he regularly tells people that you can't lose your salvation and that doesn't mean you're not saved and so forth and so on and that doesn't mean you can fall away from grace and everything in me goes off alarm bells and it's been the most confusing thing for me for months honestly because I've been listening to Charles Stanley messages, I would say solid for the last two years maybe. And I cannot think of anybody I would rather listen to who I believe knows the Lord the way, the same way I do. Meaning, obviously I think he knows him better than I do. He's been walking with the Lord for 60 something years. I've been walking with him, sold out for five and been a Christian for about 24 years. What I am so concerned about is he consistently avoids these hard scriptures like I don't know that I've ever heard him preach on Luke 14:33 you know if anyone comes to me he must give up everything he has or he cannot be my disciple or Matthew 16:24 anyone who comes after me must deny himself take up his cross and follow me Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Those are clear scriptures that Jesus is saying anyone, whoever, everybody, so forth and so on. And that means that there's not different kinds of Christians. I also see in, I can't remember where it's at in Mark, I want to say Mark 10, but obviously the parable the rich young ruler is found in Matthew 19 and there's another version I think it's in Mark 10 and Jesus says children how hard it is to get into the kingdom of God he says strive to enter the narrow gate okay he says for many will try to enter but will not be able to 
When the owner of the house comes and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. To which he will reply, I do not know you or where you come from. Matthew 7, 21. Many will say to me, or, or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? So then he's talking about, if you're not doing, he's always pressuring people on obedience and commitment and sacrifice and surrender. And I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's what we need. People need that. But he is simply saying that you're missing out on God's rewards. You're missing out on God's best. And you're, you're committing this horrible tragedy, tragedy, spiritually. Oh, you're not going to lose your salvation. And I just do not see that. I just, as soon as he says that, he loses me every single time. I have spent thousands of hours studying the Word of God with the direct influence of the Holy Spirit, not a denominational church or organization. I've read books, I've listened to what men say, and then I weigh it against what does the Scripture say. And I really believe that Charles Stanley must be under the heavy influence of a Southern Baptist doctrine that says you cannot lose your salvation. I understand there are scriptures that say that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our salvation. I understand all that. But there are over 80 scriptures. If we believed totally that you could not fall away from grace and that you could not lose your salvation... There are 80 scriptures that I've identified that would have to be made irrelevant and thrown out of scripture. And I would ask, what man would dare do that? What man would say, well, those don't apply. When Paul says, in, in uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, 2, And by this gospel, you are saved if you hold to the word which I preached to you at first. He says, otherwise you have believed in vain. And there are literally countless scriptures about holding on to the end, enduring, holding firm to the faith that you had in the beginning, to the hope that you had in the beginning, overcoming, don't let anybody take the crown, he who endures to the end shall be saved. There's just too many scriptures. In other words, if I were to say, okay, I live in an island in Fiji, yeah, Fiji, like where my future dear brother and sister Elvin and Shalini and Brielle Mani are from. Woohoo! I've been uh, shipwrecked there, cast away, and all I have is a Bible. And I beg God to open my eyes and to help me to understand this word so that I can live there. And there's a couple of other people there with me, and we're trying to figure out how to live for God. And what would I, what would I conclude... If all I had was myself and the Holy Spirit and the Bible, how is it that men can look past scriptures like Luke 6.46 and say, you can lose your salvation, you don't have to obey all that Jesus says. You know, that there's two different... How can people look past to the Jews who believed Him? So those are believers. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
If you don't hold to his teaching, you're not really his disciples and you're never really going to be free from that sin that's in your life. And Jesus says that those who are uh, sinning are slaves to sin and a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So I hear these awesome messages from Charles Stanley. I mean, the guy clearly knows God, clearly knows the word as far as I can tell. I mean, unless he's just regurgitating all this from other people's teachings and he's made up these stories, I doubt it very seriously. I do remember one message he talked about, a very difficult time where the Southern Baptist Convention was making a decision on whether or not they were split, on whether or not the Word of God was completely inerrant or not. And I thought to myself, what? What? How could that ever even be something that's up for debate? And yet it was. And so I think it must be a Southern Baptist belief, along with I'm sure many other denominational beliefs, that men naturally want to believe what they want to hear. We want to have hope in this easy salvation. The Bible says in several places that it is very difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it in that verse in Mark or 10, 14, whatever one it was. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it is easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. I think Peter says, if it is hard for the righteous to enter the kingdom of God, what will it be for the sinners and the ungodly? It is hard. We must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that this idea of you can just believe and receive Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord, I don't see that. I think that that's a false doctrine. Man, and I hate it because I love Charles Stanley. I love Charles Stanley, and I think he's preaching a good word, but I think he's held captive to a doctrine, and he's been indoctrinated by a Southern Baptist theology or doctrinal position that is not in line with Scripture. Can Jesus keep you? Yes. Is it possible for a a spirit-filled Christian to fall out of the hands of God by any source other than himself? No, I fully believe that. That nobody can take your salvation from you. But it is for us to fight and hold on to the faith that we profess. We cannot just think that, well, I believed, I'm good, I'm in. I just don't see that. I see that we have to give up everything. Jesus says it must be quoted four or five different times in ways in the Gospels. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. In another place he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. While whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. Whoever does my will. And clearly some people get heavy instructions, specific missions, uh, tremendous emphasis on following a specific will for God, and others do not. That's clear. But this idea that you can come to Christ, we're talking about eternal life here. I think at the end of your life, you're going to have to ask yourself, where's the evidence that you were actually a follower and you actually believed Him as Lord? What did you give up in your life to follow Jesus? What did you sacrifice? What did you surrender? Where is Luke 14.33 in your life? Now again, 
there are those who would say, well, that was never a believer. I just don't like that plan because, it, again, there would be no need for these 80 scriptures that are all warning the believers in the church to not go back to the old life, to hold on to what they have, to not be deceived or to be yoked with non-believers, with false disciples, with false prophets, Hold firmly to the faith which you held in the beginning. Purify yourself by obeying the word. I just don't see it. So I'm just, I've been praying and asking God. And man, I mean, it bothers me to think that I could be learning so much and confirming so many things that I know that God has taught me through this man. And then to to have him be off. And I wonder sometimes... Is that why he is so passionate about telling people to obey, to fully commit, and to surrender? Is it because it's his hope as a, has he, draw, has he made a compromise? Hey, I've got this position. If I can't tell people they could lose their salvation, well, then I'll just beat the commitment of obedience and sacrifice and surrender in and hope that more people do that. And as a result, more people will be genuinely saved. More people will genuinely receive and keep their salvation. I wonder, is it possible that he's he's had to do that? Because, man, he does not touch all those other scriptures. And I feel like I've, I've seen him come up to them before, but he dismisses it. It's almost like he can't see what the implications are of that verse. He kind of comes up to it and then quickly goes on to something else. And I'm like, oh, Stanley, get back over here. Stay on that. People need to hear this. <clears throat> but this idea that you can just easily be saved. I do not see anything in Scripture that says you can have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. I just don't see that anywhere. I think a person who wants to see it can see it. Now John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Well, if you keep reading, Mr. I want to hear what I want to hear, You'll see that it says, anyone who does not obey the Son is condemned. Down in about the 32nd, 36th verse, down towards the end, whoever does not obey the Son will not have eternal life. Uh, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. You can't think that, well, Lord, I I believed in your name. But uh, I I think I know about five or six of your teachings. I I, got to memorize I mean, man, maybe that is what God has raised me up for. I just am so thankful that God has opened my eyes. I think to myself, who has taught me this but the Holy Spirit? And there have been a couple of people along the way that have confirmed. I remember reading um, John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Man, that was an eye-opening. That was an eye-opening. Now, the thing is, I feel like I could be like, man, Mike, you're splitting hairs. But I feel like John MacArthur is wrong in the fact that he doesn't claim that God speaks anymore outside of the Bible. And I think to myself, how in the world have you ever received direction about what you're doing? And so I feel like he's got a handle on the good doctrine, but I feel like he's missing... I think he's almost going overboard on the intellect. That he's becoming this... It's becoming dry. And I mean, I don't know, but... I don't know what his personal relationship with the Lord looks like, but 
for anybody to tell me that God doesn't speak anymore, I'd have to say, I'm sorry, brother, you've missed the boat or you haven't gotten on it yet. Because I can tell you over a hundred instances in, that I've caught in journal of God speaking to me, then this will happen. Tell me it's going to happen, then this happens. Or God guarding me, warning me, giving me promises. And I hate to say it, but when Laura comes along, oh my God, my God, my God, my God will be proven. When Laura comes along, I have told the Father so many times, my God, please give me a story that reveals your glory. And when God brings Laura into my life, it will be Him honoring me that He is in fact with me, that I have heard Him correctly, that He has been using me to teach and shape and impact other people's lives. It will be validation because God doesn't do awesome things like that for people that are off doctrine. And I'm not saying that everybody is on something. Even MacArthur was wise enough to say all of us are wrong on something. I think he's wrong on the whole thing that God doesn't speak anymore. I think he has misinterpreted teachings from some of the early reformers. Like Charles Spurgeon is famous for quoting, if anybody comes to me and talks about some new revelation they have or whatever, I say, take your nonsense out of here. Well, I understand new revelation. I'm not, I would never say God gave me new revelation. I would say He gave me personal revelation, understanding on His existing revelation, but He's never added new revelation. Oh, God's doing a new thing. Or God's, oh, let me tell you what, so, no way, no way. But God has given me revelation over His Word, and He has spoken to me through His Word clearly and often. And primarily uses his word. He just sometimes directs me to it in a very providential way. Now, MacArthur brings, believes in providence. But, I mean, I've just heard things in my spirit and I can't say, oh no, that was just my head. That was just my head that said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But do not be afraid. I am in control of this and this is about your character development. I, that, I couldn't have thought of that on my best day. I couldn't have thought about that on my best day. That's just one example. You know, or times that just the Holy Spirit has led me to scriptures and then I've been given this understanding. You know, at, inquire of the Lord. Think on what I'm saying. The Lord will give you insight. Where does that insight come from if the Lord's not speaking still? You can call it whatever you want to call it, but God is speaking. He's, he's making known His truth. He's giving direction. Anyhow, I'm going to stop now and... <laughs> 